How are you? I'm good. Which part of town are you staying in? Sisyphus peered into the mist, a stone stole from a precipice, paused. This is Q Presents, oops, the making of. Q Presents, the making of. This is Q Presents The Making Of, a podcast brought to you by the world's best music magazine, Q. I'm Laura Barton, sitting in for your regular host, Ted Kessler. Each week we explore the life and work of one of our finest musicians, and, like you, we seek to discover who they are and just where exactly their music comes from. Our guest this week is Andrew Bird, multi-instrumentalist, stupendous violinist, singer, songwriter, and most importantly, an acclaimed whistler. Born in Lake Forest, Illinois, Andrew was a member of the band Squirrel Nut Zippers and Bowl of Fire before pursuing a solo career. He has now recorded 12 solo albums, melding folk, jazz and blues, glockenspiel, multi-tracking, loops, improvisation and the reworking of his own songs. He has a degree in violin performance, is a proponent of the Janus Spinning Horn and wrote and performed The Whistling Caruso for The Muppets Movie. Hello Andrew, how are you? I'm pretty good. Did I get the number of albums correct? I think it's 14. Oh, this God point. damn it. Yeah. Where did he sneak the extra two in? I can't, I honestly can't keep track. It's just, Wikipedia you know, there's, can't. yeah, it's hard to count because there's a lot of projects in between mm-hmm. the song records. Is that how you like to work, having a lot of things on at once? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little too, um, the industry schedule is a bit slow for the creative process, so mm-hmm. I have to come up with projects to you know writing a song record takes a lot of discipline um, and a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor so that I have a project where you can stretch out in between and you right now you're between having recorded an album and promoting it and touring it yeah what's your other back burner project or is that secret um, I'm not sure what's next I'm gonna keep working on these echolocations mm. records there's two more locations that have been done that I'm going to... Do you want to tell us what the idea of those is? Yeah, I, I go into an outdoor space that has extraordinary acoustics and hopefully is visually interesting too and, and I kind of come in like a like a bat and echolocate that space. I come in and I improvise and try to find the notes that tells me the most about what where I am or tells the listener the most about. So a- every space has certain notes it wants to hear. And uh, and there's certain techniques and um, in notes in the harmonic series that then give you all this feedback that I build the improvisations on. And then I take the field recordings home and then make a record out of it. What was the first one? It was a canyon in a remote part of Utah called Coyote Gulch. And I it was on a tip from a musician friend of mine who said the acoustics are extraordinary because the cliff the canyon walls uh, come together almost uh, like a cathedral and so the reverb uh, tail on it is like 10 seconds or something Um, so you you can almost create harmonies um, in these spaces and in all of them coincidentally I'm standing in water interesting yeah and what were the notes that that canyon wanted uh, C sharp, all the way. Then, then I did the L.A. River, 
and that was solidly G. Interesting. Yeah. What emotions do you associate with G and C sharp? Well, C sharp is a more interesting note on the violin. Um, Not having any sympathetic resonance on the rest of the instrument, and it has kind of a woody... Uh, you hear a little more bow noise because it's not reverberating as much. Um, but when I got into the LA River, which is more of a man-made structure, a lot of concrete, um, for some reason, it just wanted to be in G. Yeah. Do you think you have a particular note that resonates with you? Um, I think it changes day to day. Today? Uh, today, I'm... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let it be known he's just placed his head in his hands. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm kind of in an A-flat <laughs> mode. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. Yeah, It is raining out there. Yeah. Um, you have called your new album My Furni- Finest My Finest Work Yet. As a man, do you veer more towards boasting or self-effacement? Well, I think for those who know me, um, would not think of me as a boastful person, um, which is why it's kind of like a, it begins as an inside joke, as a lot of my, I always have a working title when I'm making a record, and the, the months before it comes out, you have to kind of call it something, and I come up with something that's just, amongst my friends is, is kind of a joke. And then they lately that those titles tend to stick. Um, I made fourteen records, and do you really need to hear another poetic title for a, a collection of songs? Just come out and say what you think. <laughs> we also, I suppose, live in quite bombastic times at the moment. That's my other thing. I say this is we're not living in an age of discretion. Um, Did you think about putting it in all caps, like a Trump tweet? Uh, no, we tried different, um, fonts and some of them looked too biblical mm. with the image that's on the cover of the record kind of, uh, could you describe that for us? Well, it's, it's, it's basically a recreation of the death of Marat, which is this, um, famous painting from the French revolution of, a. for those who don't know the history of it, it just kind of reads as like the suffering poet on his death bed, in this case, a bathtub full of blood, but, um, <laughs> This guy has just been assassinated, but it looks kind of reads to most people like, oh, the suffering poet penning his final words. Um, but you're not endorsing assassination, obviously. We should probably point that out quite clearly. Uh, yeah, well, I did want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you have got a track on there which is about or written just after the 2016 election, Bloodless. Mm-hmm. Where were you when the election took place? I was in Portugal. Wow. Yeah, and I went to sleep in Porto and woke up the next morning to the news. How did that feel? Uh, I was just in a a state of shock for the next while after that. And then I had a show that night in in Lisbon, and it was a very somber atmosphere. Um, And then I flew back through Newark, and it was a strange thing happened where I was in a shop getting something and there was the person running the shop at the, at the airport was a young, young woman, 
African American. I just gonna guess that she um, may have been gay, and she was talking to her coworker, and she was like, "Oh man, it's just hard not to gloat." Like she had just she was a big Trump supporter, and the guy's like, "Yeah, yeah, just try to keep it to yourself, man. It's not gonna not gonna go well with your coworkers." <laughs> and I was like. And I was looking at her and said, you do not look like a Trump supporter at all, if I may make that judgment. Um, and I saw that I was like, wow, something's going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's, first of all, you had one young person that was like, had not voted, and then one that had, and it was not what you'd expect. Anyway, I wrote Bloodless between then and Charlottesville. Um, it's not like I set out to write a political record. It's just, it's, to me, it's just, um, it's a bit, it'd be a bit conspicuous to not write about it, mm-hmm. given what's happening and being alive. You've said that um, you hope that in some way it will be helpful. Yeah, it took me a while to find the right vocabulary for it, because there's a certain anxiousness right after the election all my friends were like you got to do something it's you have a voice you have people are listening to you and I'm like yeah but it's got I got to figure this out I got to you know it's not as simple as just uh you know raging you know about it it's just um and especially if you want to go beyond the choir um which is the goal and also, if you don't really even know where the choir is anymore, if it's so some people aren't voting, and then you've got people you wouldn't expect to vote for him, it was such a confusing time. Yeah, um, but I know. Uh, I mean, my my audience is people would assume is this NPR kind of liberal, uh, educated audience, but it's not necessarily the case. It's all over the place, all age groups, all demographics. And a lot of people that don't wouldn't d- don't agree with me and let me know that, um, but they're like, "Yeah, um, I don't agree with you, Andrew, but your music is cool." So it's generally not a hostile yet. Um, we'll see what this record does. <laughs> but um, no, I tried to write in a way that that's that's addressing these things, but um, ste- you know, stepping back from the whole thing and, and looking at it from a different offering pieces of history that that kind of give us a different look at it because something to get I didn't want to enter the scrum of the 24-hour news news feed you know Uh, that was the goal was not to be down at that level of discourse Um, and it was really hard to find like with a song like Bloodless where the line is of how explicit to be in a song you start naming dates and names and you place you give that song a shelf life um, and you don't want that. Um, it becomes too topical, and it's it's it, people's eyes glaze over, and they don't listen. Um, so, but I pushed that line as as far as I think I was willing to go with Bloodless. You know, um, actually, Bloodless, I wanted to ask you about because it contains a line about poets exploding. Yeah. Um, could you just uh, unravel that a little bit for us? Yeah, because I'm I was. I've been always fascinated by the Spanish Civil War and reading George Orwell's Ode to Catalonia. And I feel like that's a pretty appropriate analog for what's been happening where 
and it's not that Trump is Franco. It's a different, uh, different thing. It's more about like what the left is doing and how they might. What worries me is they might just be self-defeating, or not put up enough of a solid front against the fascist elements, which is what happened then, and it was tragic. Anyway, that's a line from um, that I I picked up from Tristan Zara, who's a one of the early Dadaists and was in Spain, and that was his writing about what was happening, and I thought. Um, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. It's a bit of a cryptic line, but I was my take on it is that that it's uh, perhaps a self-destructive tendency of of the left to to uh, squabble over ideologies when the real threat is looming and just not seeing the forest through the trees kind of scenario. Do you think there is a poet that would explode best? I'm going to go for Walt Whitman. Um, yeah, he'd, he'd, I'd go for him. Mm-hmm. I kind of oh. think it would be kind of like confetti as he blew up. You think so? He's got a lot of words in there, hasn't he? A lot of exclamations. He does. So it wouldn't be a gory scene. It would be kind of It would be quite visceral. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we've cleared that one up. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned then about um, a line being cryptic, and I quite often think of your own lyrics as being a little bit like cryptic crossword puzzles sometimes. There are little nods to history and um, a lot of world play, a lot of um, mm-hmm. y- your, your approach to language is quite playful. Mm-hmm. Um, are you constantly looking for little um, tidbits you can store away for lyrics in the future? I, I am. I become... Um obsessed with a word often it is much for its, its phonetic uh, qualities as as its meaning and usually it's, it's it's a word that I myself am not quite sure where it's what it is um, and like for instance the song Sisyphus um, began with talking about these ideas of thresholds like crossing this line into a different um, uh, state, you know. Uh, so I was thinking precipice, like being on the edge of a massive change. And uh, so it simply began with like uh, rhyming, you know. Uh, so I thought Sisyphus, and then I did a little more research into the story of Sisyphus, and I was like, oh, that's that's appropriate to what how I feel. And um, and it kind of takes off from there. Next thing I know, I have more words than I can fit in a song. Do you have a favorite word? I know. That, you know, there's all those like, sort of onomatopoeic things that I just are escaping me at the moment. I like the word lush. That's a beautiful word. Yeah. Um, loam. It's a good one. Yeah. And gloaming leads on nicely. Oh, from maybe there. it was gloam. Well, they're both lovely. Um, uh, that's that's about it. Yeah. That's a very nice choices. Or were you quite well steeped in in mythology anyway? You said you had to read up about Sisyphus, but yeah, I I'm fairly I, I read up on that quite a bit, and I like history, and the drier the better. Um, yeah, one of one of my favourites of your songs contains is titled after is it Scythians, mm-hmm. 
Could you tell us who they were? They were sort of uh, underdog civilization, ancient civilization of, of on the Russian steppes. And uh, I chose them in, in ninth grade to, to write about because I liked being the outsider. <laughs> like choosing, <laughs> everyone else was doing Julius Caesar, and I thought, I'm going to find the most, you know, unknown um, civilization. So I, I got really into them. And then the song is, is actually pretty peculiar. It's kind of juxtaposing this view of them on the Russian steppes with like a real estate agent that's kind of offering views of, of fallen empires from the, their condo development or whatever. Um, I mean, the cryptic thing um, was more, I, I leaned on that a lot more in, the, in my past writing. Um, I think you'd find... The last two records are comparatively less cryptic, and that's... This one particularly, actually, is, is probably the most straightforward, I think, in, in terms of lyrics that you've done. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Is it age and not wanting to hide behind things? Is it the, the urgency of the times? Yeah, I think it's harder um, and more challenging to write um, simply and directly, and that's what I appreciate in other other writers. And it's, it simply is just it's part of growing as a writer it's just it's just more challenging um the, which songwriters in particular do you admire for that simplicity i think john prine is the master of that um when you can destroy someone with just a few words um and there's a humor and um pathos in in the same line towns van zant is another one um yeah, they they get compared to Dylan, and I don't think that's fair. It's like Dylan was extremely cryptic in his writing, um, and I re I really just like the the groundedness of those those writers. You uh, mentioned something called the Bellevue Bridge Club. It's the title of the last song I think mm -hmm. on the album. Um, could I ask you what it is, whether you remember, and what the first rule of Bellevue Bridge Club might be? Um. It's for the world weary um, <laughs> that are done fighting. Um, All the A flats in the world. Yeah, and it's it's just for people that want to sit down and 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 uh, and do something mindless for a change after a lifetime of conflict. It, that song took the longest to write of all these. I've been writing it for seven or eight years, maybe. And it's because I the first thing I wrote was like, we'll be playing bridge on the psych ward with Barbara Jean and Sue, which I thought, that has to be a song. That, But then to work backwards and figure out what context is going to make that make any sense um, took me forever. I spent the most amount of time on that song. And it was, it was first it was about, I was imagining, you know, soldiers coming home from the Great War and being shell-shocked and and being on the psych ward and, and just being happy to be, have a quiet, um, boring life. Um, and then, uh, yeah, but I finally cracked the code on that one with the, I finally wrote the bridge that talks about, um, the Stockholm syndrome thing. And, and then it opened up finally. When and where did that come to you? Um, I, it, it was almost shaping up to be a duet. It was like I needed another voice in the song to um, 
to uh, to comment on it. So I do that a lot where when I get into a really, I, I paint myself into a corner with a song and then it, I have to introduce a new character to say, okay, you know, you're, you're being obtuse and, and just stop. <laughs> so that was the other voice that says, there you go again, finding brilliant ways to make, make things harder. Um, are we smarter alone in this endless Stockholm sy syndrome? Um, and that, that, that second voice, sometimes I cast as another person. In this case, I just did it uh, myself. Are you like that in day-to-day -day life? Do you need another voice to tell you to, to stop doing what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, is the single point of view narrative from for songwriters is why even if it's relentlessly a good album after four songs you're like i need to hear from somebody else <laughs> you know what i mean um and either yeah sometimes i mean every record i have another voice i feel like i have to have another voice step in otherwise i run the risk of wearing people out uh, Andrew, I notice that you have your guitar there with you. Could you perhaps play us a little of Bellevue Bridge Club? Okay, this is Bellevue Bridge Club. And I will hold you hostage Make you part of my conspiracy You will be with to carnage You know there's no you without me I'm gonna shake you Of life beyond your front door I will exploit you And conscript you For my narrative scheme Show you distressing scenes I'm gonna drag you from your bed onto your floor By the means necessary by the means necessary By the means, yeah Necessary Again, finding brilliant ways to make things harder, always smarter, alone, or in this endless Stockholm syndrome, is what is known. 
gonna break this two-way mirror. I'm gonna shake you, break you by the means necessary. By the means necessary. By the means. Barbara Jean and Sue We will be playing Bridge on the Sack War With Arthur Jane and Lou Oh, and if you ever Start to get bored You know there's no one to blame But you And I will hold you Hostage Make you part of my conspiracy You will be witness to carnage You know there's no you without me Beautiful. And it had your name in it, too. So. I know. On a sideboard. Wow. There you go. I feel honoured. Yeah. That was gorgeous. Thank you. This is Q Presents the making of. When you rework your own songs, is that like bringing another voice to a song that already exists? Um, yeah, that can be it. Um, you know, like with the last record, it was, it was, um, what the heck is that song? Fiona. <laughs> on oh, it. with Fiona Apple. Uh, it's, I'm blanking on that song, but um, uh, that was just an internal uh, conversation. And I decided to to cast someone else for that voice, but um, that's usually what these are are um, uh, late at night dialogues in your own head, and sometimes you need to get it out of your head to um, to make sense. Because when you're arguing in your own head, you don't have any need for pronouns. You don't know who's actually saying what sometimes. Um, and then that becomes a struggle. It's like, okay, who is who is that voice? And um, is it as simple as just uh, like a romantic counterpart? Uh, oftentimes it's not, but you try to make it that simple. Um, in fact, one of the dialogues you have in, um, I think it's yes, the same album as Scythian Empires, I think. Um, you ask, do you wonder where the heart resides? Is it in your head or between your sides? Mm-hmm. Um, have you decided the answer to that yet? Um, do you wonder where the self resides? Oh, is it the self? I think it's the yeah. heart resides. Yeah, because that, that's that. another historical thing. I was reading about how uh, we assume, we, we've all agreed universally that it's the heart that's the um, center of the our emotions and our self. When before that notion came up, it was like, oh, it's the liver or it's the spleen. Um, the spleen. And then they would analyze bile to... Uh, predict or to 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 figure out what what's going on in inside you um and so that that's where that was coming i don't know if i answered your question though. well where does the self reside is it in the head or to you um 
I, I, I would put my money on, on, on the brain, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's, it's all intellect. It's just, I think that's the organ that's doing most of that. Work. Can we talk about whistling? Yeah. I'm a really rubbish whistler. Um, and so is the lovely Sue, who's our producer mm-hmm. here. Um, can you tell us what the trick is to good whistling? Mm, I mean, it's a really tough thing to teach. You can't like reach in someone's mouth and like not politely, no. <laughs> crosses some boundaries. <laughs> a few. Um, I don't know, man. I'm my my son just started whistling. He's seven, and every time he loses a tooth, he it kind of opens up a new range so we need to lose some teeth so is i think what he's saying yeah <laughs> um so when did you first realize you could whistle well uh around age of six or so um you know uh yeah my grandmother bird um would whistle and she she sort of showed me how um and then i just started doing it uh all the time and even if i'm not producing a sound i'm usually breathing notes in and out does Um, mrs bird ever say will you stop doing that because i imagine it's charming on stage and just around and about occasionally but if you're living with someone yeah now that there's two of us doing it uh, it's maddening yeah um so i feel sorry for her (laughs) um it's a is it a skill that might assist you in another career I was thinking about it, and I could only think being a, a traffic officer. But they get yeah. a whistle, don't they? There's different. I mean, there's all sorts of. Someone should do a pedi- pedagogical, pedagogical, <laughs> pedagogical, <laughs> whichever it is. Um, study of of whistling because there's a variety of techniques, and I I tend to be more of the operatic full full bodied whistling. But other people do like the the voice breaks, which I can't do. The the bird calls. Yeah, and that's a totally. And then there's the whistling through the, t- uh, with the fingers and the teeth, or um, through the front teeth. That's more of the traffic officer approach, which is less of a musical and just like, hey. So is there a sort of a league? So the people who can do bird calls are at the top, or operatic at the top, and then your traffic officer at the bottom. Um, I'm impressed by the bird calls. Mm. Like I don't, I honestly don't know how to do that. I think it has to do with um. There's some physiology involved. Like, um, I know when our son was born, you know how they they can snip a little part of your tongue, yeah. the tongue tie thing. I said, no, don't do that, because <laughs> I think that has something to do with. It. I just I don't know exactly. I know my my tongue is kind of omnidirectional. Um, I have a lot of independent motion. <laughs> uh, it's a funny thing to talk about. <laughs> But it allows me to create different cavities in my mouth to, mm-hmm. to kind of do the range. So I can go pretty low, like. Kind of. And it's more of like a vibrato, like. A, and I'm pushing a lot of air a lot mm. of the times. Um, so that suits me. It's, it's not. Uh, I, I have kind of a mission of sorts to make the whistle sound as badass as possible because it has a reputation for being whimsical and like lighthearted and uh and i worked really hard on this this record like with sisyphus to make it sound like you know super thug whistling yeah 
Um, can you tell us about Lake Forest? It's actually Lake Bluff. Oh, God damn it. Lake Bluff. Can somebody Lake address your Wikipedia page? Because there's not enough albums and it says you're Lake Forest. Lake Forest was a slightly tonier um, adjacent community. I see. And Lake Bluff was, was, I wouldn't call it working class, but it was comparably. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's North Shore of Chicago. Um, beautiful, right on the lake. Uh, and there were bluffs that went down to the lake, and then these ravines that cut through the neighborhoods, and we would just live in these ravines and uh, play war all day long. <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of music in your house growing up, wasn't there, classical music? Um, none of my family played music, though. Um, mm. My mom just is an artist, and she had this romantic notion of her kids playing classical music my dad was more of a country music uh fan um but the north shore was you know culturally pretty um pretty had a strong like uh, classical music uh infrastructure and there were great teachers and um and so i would go to from age of four would go to my suzuki classes every week and uh with my mom and um and we would, as an artist, we'd go to museums a lot and sketch. And, you know, it was just like a very artistic upbringing, I would say. Do you have much recollection of being four and being given a violin? Well, first they give you a Cracker Jack box with a ruler taped to it. <laughs> um, and the Suzuki method is this Japanese method where you, it's a lot about uh, respect for your teacher and, and bowing and all this ceremony. And so when you're four, you just go with your Cracker Jack box and bow to your teacher and then you play some games and you go home and then when my dad got me finally got me an actual violin I remember him holding it out of my reach while he explained to me the responsibility of having this expensive instrument and I remember jumping trying to grab it um, does it still feel like a responsibility or is it a source of joy now to you and fun uh, I've struggled with the instrument because it's it's such a painful instrument to master over the years and there's so much associations of growing up and the teenage years and uh you know when i was 15 or 16 i decided to dedicate myself to this in like a very monastic sort of severe way and practice eight hours a day until um i was working my first gig as a musician at a renaissance fair in southern wisconsin and my my fingers just stopped working and and so that's when I started writing more so you know writing songs because I was like I'm I've got so intense into like mastering this instrument that I forgot about other aspects of being alive so was that almost your moment of rebellion because I was going to ask if you've been playing the violin since you were four effectively Mm. there must have been a point where you're like I just want to go out with my friends or listen to Megadeth or something? Mm, um, no, it was more like uh, high school was all Britpop, 4AD. That was the backdrop. I didn't care for it at all. I, I, my The violin concertos I, I was playing were way more goth than <laughs> this mortal coil. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, rebellion, yeah, I mean, I had my own way of rebelling. It w- wasn't the typical 
um, way, but I did definitely went through a phase, and it, it was more like when I st- got out of the classical thing, I was like, it was more against my teachers who were even more my former teachers who would, um, you know, probably judge what I was doing at the time. And I was like, look, I'm, I'm playing really scratchy and I'm playing this like old country blues and folk music and, and it feels so good and you'd probably hate it. You know, it's, is that, is, those are the conversations in my head. You, as you mentioned, are now a father. Do you keep all that kind of stuff in mind when you're thinking about your son and music and whether or not he should play? I mean, he's already whistling. Mm-hmm. Does he play instruments already? He plays guitar. He takes guitar lessons. It's it's a tricky thing to navigate, you know, how involved to be. Um, but he's as long as he's just, he's still living in our universe and our music that's on and, and he's doing everything you would you'd expect um, from our taste and everything, which is cool but also disturbing at the same time. Um, so I don't know if there'll come a time where he... Right now, he's every time some Top 40 stuff comes on, he's like, oh, this is terrible. This. <laughs> and you're, you're quietly like, you're like, yeah. But, um, you know... Uh, He's he's got I mean he he definitely it's funny having your own offspring now being like a sounding board for your own work where he's whistling things that I'm working on or when I was working on this record um he'd be very um critical really he'd be like daddy you sure you want <laughs> you want to end the song that way <laughs> which one was that uh manifest there was like a long organ mm. note that just kind of went on for a while just because it was supposed to be a a fade probably and uh he's like hmm yeah i don't know about that and so we immediately took care of that (laughs) am i right in remembering that you had soon after he was born didn't you have him on one of your records was he breathing or laughing yeah yeah i forgot that i did that (laughs) i was going to ask whether he's aware of that that's so precious isn't it Mm -hmm. um in a nice way, I should say, precious. It is a nice... No, but it's, I, I, I'm a little bit like... The first... Uh, initially, when you have a kid, the, the pride is so overwhelming. It, it, it's a good reason why it's so annoying to so many people, <laughs> you know. Um, but I'm sorry, what was your question? I, I was just wondering whether your son is aware that he's on record. Um, I think so. I think... I don't know, know if we've pointed that out to him yet. Um, he uh, he did a sketch of the album cover, and for a while we were considering it as an album cover, and then then that we ended up doing the the death of Marat thing. But um, and he was really like, "Why did you? What was wrong with my drawing?" Oh, no. <laughs> so you got to be careful with that. Uh, you said that you didn't like Britpop or Four AD or any of that stuff in high school. Do you remember what your first record was that you bought? Um, I think it was Mozart's Requiem, but I was also, uh, I was into Donovan when I was like interesting 17, choice. 18. Well, I had a girlfriend that was 
really into Donovan. That became the soundtrack to that relationship. Can you um, listen to Donovan now? I think some of it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes it's a little silly, but it's like the the recordings are like Catch the Wind. A lot of people make fun of that song, but it's gorgeous. So, um, yeah, I had a little bit of classic rock phase. Um, Such as? Well, first I got into, um, as a joke, got into Uriah Heep, and then I kind of... <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> it was like, what a funny name for a band. Mm-hmm. And then I had this cassette tape of this Uriah Heep, um, like organ metal, early proto-organ metal. Yeah. It's, it's not pretty music. It's no. Um, what else did I get into? I mean, then I kind of found my way through some bad jazz records to find the jazz that I liked. And since I found that, that's kind of like the baseline of most of my listening diet of, of records is are mostly jazz records. What do you think of the new British jazz scene or the, and the new American jazz scene at the minute? It's encouraging. It's, it's more open-minded than it's ever been. And yeah, I just did this festival in Miami with snarky puppy and, and the undead jazz scene and out of New York and and all the people I in my band are heavy jazz players, even though we're not playing jazz per se. But um there's more of like really appreciating the spirit of jazz without actually playing the the standard head and improvise and then come back to the head kind of thing that's been going on for years. What is the spirit of jazz to you? Well, it, it doesn't even have to involve like wild solos. It can just simply be an openness. It's it's a it's a mindset of coming in like with making this record of being prepared and yet being open at the same time. And that's a f- those are seemingly contradictory modes to be in and you've got to it's a mind game to try to figure that out. But I feel like with this latest record, like the way we went about recording it was all modeled after, you know, the Rudy Van Gelder sessions of like the early 60s. So playing live all together, is that right? Finding the room that, you know, um, with just the right acoustics and everyone playing what that room, kind of like the echolocations things, playing what that room wants, letting the instruments bleed into the other mics. It, it's it goes against all the production um trends of the last 30 40 years of like controlling everything so you can do this amazing mix um when we recorded bloodless what came back after we recorded it off the tape machine was it i mean you couldn't if you wanted to change anything you'd have to change all the other sounds because they're all connected when you're in the middle of that, how different does it feel as a musician or a singer to be surrounded by that sound and feel it bleeding all in together? Um, I mean, it, it, it's been a, over these years of making all these records, it's like, how do I trick myself into feeling like I'm on stage without it sounding kind of scrappy like a live record? Um, and I feel like I finally got there. Um, and so it was like no headphones, um, anything that could detach you from what's happening. Because I quickly unravel when I start to deconstruct 
a song or do it track by track. Um, so I put my no headphones, put my voice through a amp with a little reverb just to compete with the band. My drummer is phenomenal, can play really quiet but still groove. And when we were doing Bloodless, the biggest challenge was to try to stay, keep my voice on mic because it was so such a strong groove um, that you're just getting physically excited by it. Um, and that kind of, once we got that song, it was like the rest of the record just fell into place. While we're talking about sound, for the uninitiated, could you explain the Janus spinning horn, please? Yeah, um, technically it's called the Janus horn, but um, we just call it spinny. Nice. Um, Janus is like the two-headed dog, I think, from mythology. Faces both ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it is a... Um, how to describe it? People may maybe see it as like a Victrola-type speaker that um, has two two Victrolas facing opposite directions, and it, it has a rotor mo motor on it that causes it to spin. And the sa resulting sound is not quite like a Leslie, but a little more like a tornado siren or air raid siren because it's throwing the sound out and it's creating a slight Doppler effect and you actually hear the wind of it hitting the microphone. And um, and I tend to, uh, so I, I loop my violin through two different rigs. One is pizzicato and that's in a stationary amp and that tends to be my skeleton of the song. And then the Arco, the bowed stuff, goes through the Janus horn, and uh, that's just a sound I've never gotten tired of, is putting that linear, th that kind of uh, Arco sounds through the spinny horn, and then kind of dropping the, I drop the octave with the looping pedal, and then it gets this low frequency kind of wash of, of static strings, and um, it's really intense, like, um, and I can't, I just can't quit it. I've been doing it for 10 years now, and I, I, I try to bring it with me if I can. It's a beautiful creation, isn't it, to look at and to, to see in the flesh. It's it is, yeah, it, it is. And it's this um, sculptor, instrument maker in Chicago that I've known for years. He makes guitars and amps and all kind of strange cellular shapes. So he thinks of them more as like plant-like shapes. Um, and uh, I've, I've just enjoyed that collaboration with him over the years. Yeah. I, ideally, someday I want to do like a, an installation. I've done things at various museums in the States um, where I'll, I'll um, set them up in the gallery and then come in in the morning and make loops and then let it roll all day long. And I, I want to keep developing that idea because I think it's it's just so fun like to have your own museum that is just a storefront people can walk in. I haven't figured out a way to monetize this or to pay for it, <laughs> to pay the rent on it, or maybe just exit through the gift shop scenario, but um, I, I like that idea of kind of taking the focus off of me as the performer, but my job is just to come in in the morning, make some, improv improvise some loops, and then let it roll, yeah. and people can walk amongst it. You're listening to Q Presents The Making Of. Um, as an American, 
I do not expect you to be familiar with a uh, an 80s British music magazine called Smash Hits. Have you heard of this? No. 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 Um, it was a. It was to anybody who grew up here in the 80s. It was an amazing, hilarious, brilliant publication, mm. and it, one of its most well-loved sections was called the Biscuit Tin, mm-hmm. and in which uh, the interviewer would get the interviewee to answer a selection of questions, random questions from a, a tin of biscuits. Mm-hmm. That the biscuits weren't in there anymore. Um, now the the publisher who owns Q also owns Smash Hits. So what we've done is we've borrowed this uh, this idea for a feature, okay. <laughs> and uh, it means that we can do it without getting sued. Um, would you be up for doing something similar? Sure. Um, could I ask you first what your favourite biscuit is? Well, there's some confusion on this subject because... <laughs> <laughs> Legendarily. Yeah, I think of a biscuit as, as, as a savoury... A southern biscuit. Yeah, that's what I associate as. I know that... Because uh, I was just in Paris and I, this, a friend of mine runs a bakery there and they, she said, oh, I've got some biscuits for you. And then... One batch were actually savory, and, and the rest were all just like sugar cookies, what I call mm. cookies, which is a funny word. That's, that sounds like it should be a British word, cookies. It does yeah. actually, doesn't it? Or like yeah. a village in Yorkshire or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you prefer the sweet or the savory biscuit, however we're looking uh, at I actually prefer a sweet. Do you? One, yeah. What, any particular kind? Um, yeah, I like a very... Um, overdone chocolate chip cookie like burnt singed yeah um i I could maintain uh the illusion that we do have a a biscuit tin but we don't we've got a sort of pouch um but it is still full of questions could you uh withdraw one of those yeah thank you okay do you floss compelling (laughs) uh Maybe once a week. Which day? I'm not that methodical. And do you use a long piece of floss, or do you use the ecologically sound floss, or the little picks? I use, um, you know, old school floss, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. just the the string. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you whistle better once you've flossed? No, there's no effect on mm-hmm. whistling. Okay. Uh, next question, please. Mm-hmm. What is your greatest regret? Oh, let's see. My greatest regret. I mean, I I, I was racked with shame growing up. I, there's so many things I said or did that I that still cause me to shudder today. Um, but um. Yeah, when I was um, like six years old, uh, a friend of mine and I had these little wrist rockets, like these slingshots, and we just started pelting our neighbor's tent that they had outside that they were sleeping in. And then uh, the the stu- the pebbles started getting bigger and bigger, and next thing we knew, we were like heaving bricks onto this tent. There was nobody in the tent, um, but. They, we got caught red-handed. The friend's mother came out and saw us. She's like, what if somebody was in there? And it was just, I, I stayed inside for days because I 
was afraid they would see me. And, um, would you like to take this moment to apologise to them directly? I'm sure they listened to the coupon. Yeah, I want to apologise to the Hatleys, um, who lived next door to us in Lake Bluff, um, and Aaron Hatley, um, whose tent that was. And just it's just it was like it was a reminder of how like bloodlust can kind of escalate, you know. And you next thing you know, you're heaping bricks. It's just it's uh, it's horrible. So I, I it's a lesson for us all, really. Yeah. Um, question three. Mm-hmm. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? Most overrated virtue. So it has to be a virtue. Um, confidence? Interesting. Why is that? Well, I, I don't know if I'm talking about actual confidence or you know, quiet confidence I think is good. I just don't like loud confidence. Question four. What's the one thing that you would instantly improve your qu- would instantly improve your quality of life? Yeah, I was thinking about this. It's a funny thing. Like I, a lot of people think um, just if I could just go on holiday for. <laughs> when I go on holiday, I like vacations are good for business. Like I start writing. Um, but do you forget that? Before, in the rest of the time as in you think I have to keep working keep working keep working um, yeah just I'm de- in, at home I'm dealing with um, the schedule you know uh, but when I yeah go on a quick holiday suddenly I'm like oh yeah but then that writing leads to oh what I'm doing right now <laughs> promoting a record and and uh, and something that that's um, there's just a lot of talking about music and, and there's a lot of playing of music, but it's just a different you know it leads to an in- intense work schedule. Um, so it's funny how that relaxation leads to more work. So what would improve your quality of life? Uh, my life's not too bad right mm. now. Good. Um, I just I have a little insomnia, but. Um, even that I kind of enjoy. Mm. Excellent. Um, do you want to do your last question yeah. for us? What has this got to do with biscuits? It's, it's very... Um, those questions would originally have been not in a red plastic envelope. They would have been in a biscuit tin. Oh, I got you. Yeah. So that would keep people buying biscuits to find out what the question... I think it was a purely capitalist system. Okay. If you had to invite four people, living or dead, to your dream dinner party, who would you choose? Um, George Saunders. Oh, nice choice, yeah. Um, I love just, I think he understands really how people think, like sort of the tangential randomness. Um, Did you read the beautiful intro he wrote to the Wilco record? No. It was in the New Yorker's online so it's beautiful oh wow hmm. living or dead mm-hmm. okay I feel on the spot now <laughs> um, maybe Saul Bellow 
So you've got that. two writers now. Yeah, and I'm heavy on the writers. It's not a criticism, it's it's just an observation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I like I like people who write um where there's a vernacular from another time in the so picking up on different expressions that are not in our vernacular anymore. How about an artist? Maybe Bertolucci. Nice. Um, it's one of my favorite films is The, the Conformist. Mm-hmm. Um, Joan Didion. I was going to say, you probably need a lady. You don't need a lady. It'd just be nice. It helps, kind mm. of, yeah. And what do you like about Joan? Say in a very familiar fashion, Miss Didion. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I just think she's a badass. Um, and uh, I, I just kind of like that um, memoir type historical. Um, you know, slouching toward Bethlehem. Um, how about Yates? Speaking of that, that would also add some sparkle. Mm-hmm. I once uh, one of one of my first gigs as a musician was a musical um, based on Yates's life. Wow! And I was the embodiment of the fiddler of Dooney. Really. Do you still feel like that when you're playing now? Fortunately, no. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I did like 150 of these shows. Jesus. And I became very familiar with his poetry, but Mm -hmm. it was in a music theater context. Um, I'm trying very hard to imagine this, and I can't imagine Yeats the musical. Were the dances? Yeah, it kind of skipped over his fascist uh, period, too. That's a pity. It's a missed opportunity for a hit. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, Andrew mm-hmm. Bird. You have been excellent company and a credit to Biscus, Biscuit Lovers. Um, thank you for joining us and for teaching us mildly how to whistle. Mm-hmm. All that remains is for me to thank our producer, Sue, Ted Kessler, for letting me keep his seat warm this week, and all of you who have taken the time to listen. We will be back very soon with another episode, but before then, might we ask you one small favour? If you could rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes, we would love you with a fiery passion. Thanks again for listening, and Godspeed to you all. Okay, Bellevue Bridge Club. That's good, this one I don't get asked to do too much. And I will hold you hostage Make you part of my conspiracy You will be witness to carnage You know there's no you without me Q presents The Making of <laughs>